And Michael, not to get too wonky about this, you know, Casey is is a whole heck of a lot better about explaining the international, you know, systems versus our system here in the United States. But one thing that I get frustrated about as somebody who works in this industry, as somebody who had a family member, as I told you about my brother, who really had a half a million dollars worth of healthcare costs, and someone who works with individuals and employers all the time, is that the argument that's always made is like, well, we need to charge Americans more because like nobody else is paying for it. And as an American consumer, I just kind of say, well, that just doesn't work. Hello, this is Mike Andrade, and this is the Solving Healthcare Podcast. I get the great fortune today of interviewing two people from a pharmacy benefit management company that will probably say they're more in the logistics business than in the pharmacy business. We're going to talk to RX Manage today, which is an importer of prescription meds. So I look forward to this conversation because this will be very lively given the discussion around healthcare costs, more specifically given the discussion around how prescription drugs are so much higher in the U.S. in cost than anywhere around the country. This will be definitely an interesting conversation. And if you're a self-funded plan looking at something creative that you can do to offer a really affordable, it's almost a no-brainer solution for your employees, then take a listen to this one. We get to talk to Casey McPherson and Bill Hepsher, both leaders within this organization, and just an honor and a privilege to talk to them both. Casey, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for being a part of it. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's great to get together and finally get to talk about something that's really important. Yes, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And I have to say, this is the first conversation that we've had where I've actually talked to somebody a hemisphere away. And so I'm excited, and thank you for picking the time that works best for both of our schedules. And also on our call today is Bill Hepsher. Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, Michael, thanks for having me. I know it's been a while since we've been talking about doing this, and it's great to finally get together. And as you said, it's always great to have Casey join us, especially since it's something like five o'clock in the morning where she's calling in from right now. So it's always great to have her on the call during almost normal hours. So your company, and I would like to say you're a PBM, but you're not. What I would say is you're most more a logistics for brand name, high cost medications, finding a way to import them legally into the U.S. at a fraction of the cost. Did I say that correct? Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to say it. And I think it's important to know that we are not a PBM. We actually work in conjunction with PBMs or in a lot of cases work right beside the PBM. And the main reason for that is because, like you just said, we don't impact every single prescription medication. We only impact a little less than 300 drugs that are available, but those are those high cost brand name drugs that don't have a generic equivalent here in the United States. So Casey and I often like to say, although we often only impact 10% of the overall fills, we're impacting that 10% of the population or 10% of the prescription fills that's driving 80 or 90% of the RX or overall healthcare cost to a plan. Yeah, understand. And I'm sure we'll get into a couple of examples and perhaps case studies. But before we do that, Bill, could you tell me a little bit about you and how you started this company, how you and Casey started this company? Yeah, I'll give you the kind of the short version of a really long, you know, almost two decade story. A full disclosure, when I got involved in this business, I knew nothing about health insurance other than I had a health insurance card in my pocket. Certainly didn't know self-funding from fully insured to HMO to PPO. 
I got involved because my brother was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when he was 27 years old, went through a bone marrow transplant. Even almost 20 years ago, I can tell you that his anti-rejection medications cost close to half a million dollars. And at the time, I was hearing stories about caravans of families that were driving from Minnesota up to Canada or senior citizens that lived in Detroit, Michigan that were driving over to Windsor, or maybe they lived in upstate New York or Vermont or Maine, and they were driving to Canada. So I researched it and we found that we could source my brother's anti-rejection medication for 80% less than what we were paying for it here in the United States. And thankfully, because of that experience, I spoke to some of my physician friends in Florida who basically told me, listen, Bill, we write prescriptions every day. But that doesn't mean that people are taking the prescriptions that they're supposed to. You have to remember that this is prior to Medicare Part D. So a lot of folks had their doctor visits covered and their hospital bills covered, but the prescription drugs was what was really causing folks to go bankrupt at the time. And that's when I started my company called the Canadian Med Store. And we worked mostly in the senior market, helping folks, individuals order drugs from licensed pharmacies in Canada. And as you fast forward several years, we started working close with brokers, consultants, health insurance agents and working with their clients, but more on an individual basis. When the ACA came in around, mostly here in the South where I am, I'm in Tampa, Florida, we saw a lot of companies that wouldn't typically be self-insured starting to gravitate towards self-insurance. And some of those same brokers and consultants that were working with folks on an individual or fully insured basis came to us and said, well, can't we implement this in a self-insurance model? And that's when Casey, one of my pharmacist partners based out of Auckland, New Zealand, and I got together with the physician partners that Casey works with in New Zealand, and we formed RX Manage, which is basically that same concept of somebody that lives in Detroit, Michigan, driving over the border to Windsor 10 minutes away and filling the prescriptions, but it's built for an employer market. So for a self-insured employer can offer our international option to their employees to help lower those costs and recognize that savings like I talked about with my brother, 60, 70, 80% less for the exact same medications because they're coming from a licensed farm pharmacy in Canada or England or Australia or New Zealand. Now, Casey, know your title is the chief operating officer, but I, I imagine you do a lot more than that. So could you talk a little bit about your roots and how you came to be a part of Rx Manage? Sure. So as I think Bill briefly touched on, my background is a registered pharmacist in New Zealand. I'm married to a pharmacist, so we started out owning several pharmacies, working in aged care, mental health, community-based care, working with unit dose packaging. Um, we built up a really, really large business, um, got to the point where we had about 80 staff, which is big for a New Zealand pharmacy. Might not be big in the US. And then after a while, you know, we sort of did that for about 15 years and then thought it was time for a change. So we sold up and each went and sort of pursued other careers. At that time, that's eight years ago, I started working with Global RX Management and getting involved there. And it was something I didn't really have any concept of until that point, the fact that medication costs were significantly higher in the US than they are here in New Zealand. So it was quite a steep learning curve and quite an eye-opener. Um, the founding company has been going since 2001 and basically the way it got started is that the three physician owners heard about Canadian pharmacies that were shipping meds to the US and they saw an opportunity to be able to achieve even lower pricing by doing that from New Zealand you know, with the currency fluctuation that there is between the countries and they also felt that being physicians they could be sure that they could do it in a really safe and compliant way and make sure that there was no chance for any sort of corruption or you know, anything to go wrong in the supply chain. So they've been going nearly 20 years now and it just goes from strength to strength. 
Well, you've said a lot, and there's a lot of things that I'm sure the listeners of this program, they tend to be either benefit advisors, consultants, or owners or decision makers within companies of self-funded plans. And so if I'm listening to this, I might be thinking, wow, this sounds great. Why hasn't anybody brought this to us before? And what are some of the challenges that you might hear from the naysayers of something like this? To me, it sounds too good to be true. And knowing we've done business together, I've gone through that. But the benefit of this is having both of you on this call to kind of get through that. And so let's take a step back. Bill, you had mentioned something about the 300 medications comprising your 10% of fill. Can you give a range for a typical employer about those 10% of drugs? What does that represent normally in their total spend? Well, like I said, it's always different per group, obviously. You know, we can look at a hospitality group versus a trucking group versus an attorney or an engineering firm, and we're always going to see different groups, public sector versus private sector. But I can tell you that we talk to benefit advisors all the time or CFOs of companies or HR people. And I think, you know, we always talk about the 1090 rule or the 2080 rule in life. And what we typically hear is that 10% or 20% of the population is driving 80% or 90% of the overall, not only RX spend, but healthcare spend for a plan. So what we find is that when we can target those 10% of those prescriptions, those brand name drugs, we're often impacting those high percentage spenders, let's just say. And not only are we impacting them because of the actual cost of the prescription, but we find is that often that 10% of the population is driving 80% of the cost may not be the most compliant healthcare-wise. They may not be the ones that are taking the prescriptions like they're supposed to. Not to say that someone's sick because they made certain lifestyle decisions, but often that is the case. So we can impact those folks and keep them compliant on their prescription medication, which is what's important to know. But what I can tell you is that with just that 10% of the population, we can often impact 30, 40, as high as if we've seen at times 60, 70% of the overall prescription drug costs. If we can really target and get acceptance of the option from the majority of those people that are driving them the highest percentage of healthcare costs. Talk about the 10% as well. There has to be certain protocol at which you would say, hey, we can take this medication and safely ship it overseas. Can you talk a little bit about how you choose those medications that fall within your drug panel? Yeah, and I'll jump in for a second, but I think Casey would probably be one that answers this question because of the fact that she is a licensed pharmacist. But what I can tell you when I'm speaking to the the layperson, the the brokers, the CFOs, the HR people, what we typically tell people, and I'll let Casey expand on this, but we don't impact any controlled substances. So any type of narcotic, human growth hormone, anything that could be abused, we don't get involved with. And we typically don't ship any type of certain temperature controlled injectable medications. And that's where Casey can get involved because although those are typically available in Canada and England and Australia and New Zealand, we don't have a compliant way as of yet to ship those products and keep them at the correct temperature. So Casey, if you can expand on that. Sure. So what we're looking at with our formulary, it's brand name maintenance medication. So you're thinking of chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease type things. So to be included on our formulary, it has to be, first of all, a drug that has been approved by the FDA in the US for use. So we're not going to find something that's been listed for the first time in Canada, but it's not available in the US yet. We wouldn't be including anything like that. So it has to be available in the US. And then it has to be available at a lower cost internationally than it is in the US. And once we can find that, it meets the criteria of being brand name 
maintenance that's already approved by the FDA and it's a lower cost, then it goes onto our formulary from that point. And then at the opposite end, we also look for the fact once it goes generic in the US, we would then remove it from our formulary only at the point that the generic price is lower than the US brand price. And that's quite important because quite often um, when something first goes generic in the US, it's still at a higher cost than the international brand. And we do quite often get consultants saying, hey, wait, why, why are you still listing this when there's a generic? Apparently, Advia is a good example. There's a couple of generics on the market, but the international brand is still at a lower cost. So at the point where that changes and the US generic is cheaper, we would then redirect the members to obtain that generic product because we always want the employer to be paying the lowest cost possible for the medication, whether that's international brand or US generic. Just to confirm what I heard you say, Casey, is first, it's got to be safe to be shipped. But then second is like, once a drug has a generic equivalent, it doesn't mean that necessarily it's what you're prescribing is going to fall off of your formulary. There'll be a point in time when that generic drug becomes less costly than what you guys are able to fill. So at that point, you're going to take that medication off of your formulary and tell that patient to go to the U.S. to get a generic equivalent. Did I hear you correctly? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Okay. Walk me through when you guys are going through it. Is it an annual thing or is it a quarterly thing when you look at the prescriptions that are potentially coming off patent? How do you plan for that type of uh, transition, either coming onto the formulary or leaving the formulary? So we have a data analyst. Um, There's a couple of ways we do it. So firstly, we're constantly being sent prescription claims data from consultants and advisors, either for existing groups that we have where we're looking for any missed opportunities where potentially a member could be utilising the program, but they're not. So we identify that. But also for consultants and advisors that perhaps talking to a new group and they want to present this. So we would run the claims data to show them what potential is actually there. So in the process of doing that, our analyst might identify um, a drug that he sees that we could source internationally that we're not currently. So there's that constant review process happening there. But the other thing is he is also looking monthly. He subscribes to a number of newsletters or notifications, new FDA approvals. There's a lot of different places we can find out new molecules to the market. So he's constantly looking at that. And then on top of that, we also monthly double check all of our pricing. And at that point, that's where we're monitoring the generic pricing. But, I mean, we can change our formulae. Typically, we would, you know, add to our formulae two or three times a month as something comes to our attention. And then we review the generic pricing monthly and at that point decide if we need to remove anything. Just one last thing about that. I think it's important to know, too, that we have tens of thousands of individual clients that are currently ordering medications from us as well. So we can start to see when, I always jokingly say, when you see something advertised on TV, that's when you know that the drug is going to be really, really expensive. But we get requests all the time from people who say, hey, my doctor just prescribed this new medication. So obviously, on the individual side, we probably see that spike in requests for quotes on medications. And we also get responses from folks that have been ordering medications for us that notify us, hey, I don't need to order this from Canada anymore because I can now get it through GoodRx or I can get it through a discount program or I can get it through my employer plan for less expensive. So we obviously share a lot of that data and I think we can mine a lot of that data from that individual client who's a self-pay client who's ordering medication from us to see when we see requests for new drugs or when we see the drugs that we're filling fall off because they've gone generic. What are you doing to make sure the drug supply is safe? and it meets the stringent standards of what we would expect in the U.S.? 
So, I mean, basically what happens is around the world, I mean, obviously you've got the FDA, but we're only sourcing from tier one countries. So that's Canada, United Kingdom, New Zealand and Australia. And each of those countries has a regulatory body, like a you know government-controlled regulatory body, equivalent to the FDA. So in New Zealand, it's MedSafe. In Australia, it's the TGA. Canada has Health Canada. And in the UK, they've got the MHRA. So those bodies act in the same way as the FDA in terms of drug approvals. So it has to meet the same standards that it would meet in the US to be licensed in those countries. And then in terms of the supply chain, the chain of custody for our medication would be that it goes directly from the manufacturer to a licensed wholesaler in that country to a licensed pharmacy, at which point it's dispensed and shipped to the end consumer. So there's no point in that supply chain where anything could potentially be compromised. It's exactly the same as if you're on holiday down here in New Zealand, you needed a medication, you walked into a pharmacy, it's the same product. So it's not coming from a back room anywhere. It's identical. Yeah, I understand. But also we hear in the news, counterfeiting of medications is a problem. And depending on where you go, it is a problem, right? But what I'm hearing you say is like, as a part of your why and as a part of your business protocol, you're adopting the same standard as if I just drove into Canada and got a prescription then. Did I hear that correctly? Or there's probably a better way to say that. Absolutely. And on top of that, either myself or one of our physician directors has inspected all of the pharmacies that are in our supply chain. So it's very important to us that there's absolutely no way that those standards could be compromised. Okay. Yeah. And one other important thing that I think is very important to note, we've all received those spam emails saying, you know, order your Viagra online, no prescription needed. We're certainly not saying that probably the biggest thing we combat all the time is to make sure people understand that we're coming across this as a healthcare company. We're putting that first. The fact that we're founded by physicians and pharmacists, I think, speak to that. I think the fact that we've been around for 20 years doing what we're doing speaks to that. But What's really important to know is that we're not taking a brand name drug here in the United States and replacing it with some unapproved generic somewhere else. When we're shipping a medication, the reason why our formulary is so limited to less than 300 prescription medications is if somebody orders a drug through RX Manage, they're going to be getting the same brand medication that they're getting here in the United States. It's not being replaced by some foreign unapproved generic. So I always say if there's a concern, although we have to be very, very conscious, obviously, of counterfeiting that does take place, if there's a concern with that medication, then we need to be speaking to the manufacturers and we need to be saying, so Mr. Pharma manufacturer, are you saying that you're providing a subpar product to the Brits or the Canadians or the Kiwis? And obviously that's not the case. They're providing the exact same medication Believe it or not, Michael, most of the cases that we've looked at with drugs, they're manufactured in the same exact facility. The only difference is one is labeled for sale in the United States and one is labeled for sale in you know, Winnipeg, Canada, and another one's labeled for sale in London, England. But the medications are being manufactured by the exact same manufacturers, most likely in the exact same manufacturing facility. So although we need to be concerned as consumers about certain groups that are out there that are providing counterfeit medications. I think the talking point that we hear from pharma quite a bit that somehow the Canadian drugs are unsafe is simply not true. If you're getting your drug from a licensed pharmacy in Canada or a licensed pharmacy in England or New Zealand or Australia, you're getting the exact same quality medication that you're getting if you walk to your corner drugstore. Yeah, my wife takes an injection and it's, it's actually manufactured in Ireland and it right. wouldn't fit for this conversation. But it's the same damn box, as I like to say it. She can go across the street, and the variance in price can be significant. And so, yeah, I just I wanted to make sure we understood that. And an additional point is that as part of your business protocol, you make it a point you will not do a business with any pharmacy unless you actually go on site. Is that correct? That's 
That's correct, yes. We go, I mean, you need to meet the people you're working with as well. So, you know, we go and we sit down with the pharmacists, we talk through our safety protocols, make sure they understand all the processes that need to be followed. So, yeah, we do that for everyone we bring on board. So the unfortunate thing about that is I'm not qualified to inspect the pharmacy, so I don't get to travel the world to inspect those pharmacies. Casey and the physicians get to do that fun stuff. I get stuck. Not that there's anything wrong with visiting the beautiful United States, but I haven't been allowed to go on a uh, pharmacy inspection tour yet. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm assuming that you need a data request. And within that data request is a sorting process where you're going to say, okay, based on all those prescription meds, you know, these are the ones that we can safely ship from one of our, one of our tier one countries to you. And then from there, you'll be able to do some type of price comparison. And I know when we've done it in the past, you may have a good point, Bill, is that for every business, it's going to be a little different. But in the businesses that I've sent to you guys, it's been about when you look at those brand name prescription meds, it's not a lot of drugs, but the price is magnificent. And so uh, generally you look at about, I want to say maybe 60% of the total spend and comparing what you guys can distribute versus what it costs in the U.S., it's about a third of the cost coming from you guys. Now, that's best case scenario. That means everything you can fill happens. Did I say that right, guys? Yeah, and you made an excellent point when you said you know a third of the cost because what we hear a lot from when people first look at the data, whether it's a consultant or it's a CFO or it's the mm-hmm. HR person, we hear all the time that exact comparison. You know what? We're able to get a three-month supply of this medication for what we were paying for a one-month supply. And obviously, most of the time, the employer is passing on a, a zero copayment to the employee. So the employee is ahead of the game by whatever that copayment was on a monthly basis. But it's a great way to kind of describe it. I think most people say to us, they're getting a three-month supply of the medication internationally for what they were paying for a one-month supply here in the U.S. And then you get the look on the face of the buyer that says, you know, it's that look of confusion. Basically, when they say, well, my broker has been shopping this forever and we get the best discount ever. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, sorry. <laughs> so I'm sure you get that a lot. But walk me through like when you have an employer that you work with, what's your ideal customer that helps wrap around this within their plan? Let's start from there, guys. Um, in terms of the ideal customer, I would say it's someone that's probably, you know, going to be as passionate about it as we are because, you know, we can put the formula up there, we can send the messaging to the members. But what really makes a a big difference is when you have a benefit or an HR director in place in that company that really wants to drive this forward as well. That would be the ideal scenario because then you've got someone on board that's constantly talking to the members. We have some groups where the HR director, you know, when they're signing up new people, they're putting the information in front of them right there and then asking them if they take a brand medication, making sure they know about the program. You know, anyone that's going to help us drive that participation, really, they're going to be the most successful in terms of achieving the savings potential. I just want to jump in for just a second. I think what I find is that if it's employer group who's taking on that mindset of what are we going to do to engage our employees to live healthier lifestyles, but also to understand their benefits, to just throw it in as another benefit. I should probably say this about consultants as well, to just throw it up as the next shiny thing that we're going to chase after and and never discuss it for another year. We see great successes from employers that have on-site or near-site clinics. When they're doing that type of thing and they have something like that in place, they're engaging their employees. They're talking to them on a regular basis. Casey's pharmacy team can often communicate with the medical team at the on-site, near-site clinic. 
think we can move those things forward. But I also just think it's a mindset of a consultant and an employer when they're going in that direction. We're not just going to implement something and just close our eyes and talk about it again next year during renewal. We're going to move this thing forward and try to engage people. So employers that are putting in nearsight onsite clinics, putting in bonus or benefit programs for employees that actually participate in things, wellness, but not just the old wellness way of how do we really engage these people and get them to understand why healthcare costs so much and what we need to do to lower it, not only as a company, but as a society. Yeah. And I like to call that active plan management because most of the things that most brokers and consultants do and many employers, they just, that one dreaded meeting during the year when you say, what's my renewal? I hope for the best. That's probably not a great fit for you guys, not a great fit for me. It's just one of those where if you have an employer that says, look, we can really do an amazing job of giving people better care and lower cost care, but we got to take steps along the way to actively manage our plan. You know, that's what I'm hearing from you is that if you just put yourself as a widget in the pegboard of widgets, well, I don't think you necessarily want that type of customer unless they're going to give you access to data, access to a TPA or a medical team or somebody that will help you form value around their value to their employees. Is that correct? Amen. Yeah, absolutely. So walk me through, how does it work if your employer puts together a plan and I as an employee, is it a must that I use you or is it I should or that I could? No, we're certainly not a must. As a matter of fact, we discourage any group from making us a have to use. We think that the benefits are great enough that most employees are going to choose to use us. The employer obviously often encourages the employee to use us through a zero copayment or something like that. But we always say that the employer really needs to allow that person, if they choose to fill that drug at a local drugstore, because for whatever reason, they don't feel comfortable getting their drug from Canada, even after they've been educated, explained how the process works, explained that it's the exact same drug. If they don't feel comfortable with it, the employer really needs to allow them to source that medication at, you know, at the local drugstore. But I can tell you that when we normally educate folks about this and they see the encouragement to do it, they know that's going to be better for the plan. They know it's going to be better for them. They know it's going to save them money and the plan money. Most folks make a decision to utilize the international program. We're certainly not in any case a must use. We are an additional benefit that's, that's made available to the employee. Well, and Bill, I knew you were going to say that because it has to be a voluntary benefit because Correct. of some of the rules and the laws that pertain to importation and medication. I know we're going to get on that subject next. For the people that are listening, what is the number one or number two most prescribed drug so that if somebody's listening to this, maybe you can, they'll look up on GoodRx or look within their own pharmacy benefit spending report so they can compare your cost with theirs. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So some of the top ones that we see that, you know, that we're helping on, I guess the top by volume would be things like Janumet, Genuvia. We do a lot of Advia, basically a lot of diabetics and asthma therapy. They would be our top drivers. We're also seeing a lot of Aliquis at the moment, like some of the other blood thinners as well. They're quite mm-hmm. popular. In terms of the top cost drivers that we're helping with, that would be more along the lines of a lot of the HIV medications. So your Truvada, Discovery, Atripla. And then the next category from that would be some of the oral therapy for multiple sclerosis. So Orbagio, Tecfidera, Galenia, those type of things. So they're all pretty popular. All right. And what do you typically see in a range of adoption? You're going to have those employers that are probably just throwing it out as a nice to have with long-term impact of saying, 
we're going to build the adoption of this over time versus those that are just all in it. What do you typically see as a percentage of the volume through your program? Yeah, I think there's what we'd like to see and then there's what we do see, right, right. which is probably true for you know all benefit things that you put in place. Usually, so what we do see when we run claims data is that typically 10% of members have a medication that would be on our formulary. So, you know, so we're not talking about a really big set of the population from the starting point. When someone puts the plan in place, I would usually say aim for getting a third of those people across in the first year because we see a lot of people already have a prescription on file at the corner store. They don't want to move that until they get a new prescription, which might be six or nine months away. And sometimes they just, you know, there's just slow adoption. They might be a little bit sort of nervous or skeptical but once you get a few people using it and then they start talking about it within the office you know hey I got my medication shipped on the new international program and I didn't have to pay for it then the next person's like hey what what's that about that's where you sort of get the participation increasing Bill said you know it has to be voluntary and it's not going to be for everyone so you know when you're looking at the fact that you know our potential might be 10% of the population if you get half of them you're going pretty well and higher than that you know I guess, you know, we wouldn't have seen any groups of more than 50 to 75% engagement from those that potentially could. Yeah, and what I was going to add is just that, you know, we're constantly trying to look at how do we do a better job engaging people? How do we get more people involved in participating? We're not charging the employee a per member per month, so there's no loss to the employer technically, but we always look at it as a real loss. If we're looking at claims data and we're saying, man, we got 10 people that aren't participating and we could save the employer $10,000 or $100,000 with these 10 people, how do we engage those folks? What I can tell you that my research has shown and when Casey and I have been working on this is it comes back to two things largely. Number one, again, what we talked about, how much has the consultant and the HR person, whoever's going to run the program and introduce it, how bought in are they on this? Is this just another job that's been thrown on their desk or are they buying into the marketing of it? The other thing, and I guess this probably makes sense, is if we look at a hospitality group versus a law firm, we'll see that hospitality group has a much higher percentage of participation. And I think the reason for that, quite honestly, is a $60 monthly copayment to somebody who's maybe making $10 or $15 an hour is a big difference versus a partner in a law firm who's paying a $60 copayment. There might not be as much of a motivation to kind of go at a zero copayment there. So we're finding more and more of that. We're talking to some of those other groups and maybe how do they incentivize a little bit differently. But I think the two things to tell you is that when we find engagement, it's how much has the person who's going to be driving the program bought into it? And again, the type of group. Only because I really believe that, you know, some of those more vulnerable populations that aren't really highly compensated, this is a great way to maybe put an extra $800 a year in their pocket versus somebody else who the $60 copayment doesn't really make that much of a difference to their lifestyle. Oh, agree. Totally. And what I'd say is within that industry, if you're looking at low margin transportation or low margin manufacturing, the reason why an employee would want to have that is the same exact reason why an employer would, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. one of those things, I call them smart shopper options. When you create a financial incentive for somebody to get the same or better care for a lower cost out of his or her own pocket and it benefits the employer, that's a no-brainer. And so, yeah, I agree. And what I've heard you guys say is, we haven't said it, but I'm assuming at certain checkpoints throughout the year, throughout the relationship, you'll answer the question, what can we do to get in front of more people or how do we do that? And with the right employer, you're going to get to that improved engagement to the point where it will make 
sense for each individual? Yeah, definitely. We work closely with a number of different strategies to try and improve engagement levels. I would assume one of those engagements would be getting a regular or frequent download of prescription data from the pharmacy benefit manager to say, okay, what's changed and who else can we get in front of? If you've got the right third-party relationship, TPA relationship in place, they'll probably help you along the way with getting that membership information. Is that correct? That is our ideal scenario. And we do have quite a number of groups become more and more so that will send us monthly data to look through and they want us to be identifying each month who could be using this and they're not and then either they will conduct their own outreach to the members or they ask us to and that's another service that we provide and that we will contact the member let them know there's a new benefit available you know see if they're interested and our customer rep can help sign them up on the phone get them an account activated fax the prescriber for a new prescription for them and get that underway straight away. So that's the ideal scenario is when we get that claims data monthly, that's when we can really get in and make a good difference. Now, can we talk about the legality of importing drugs? I mean, imagine there's a client or two that might ask you, we didn't think we can procure medication from overseas for on behalf of our employees. Yeah, sure. And I think the two main questions that we typically get, whether it's from an individual or if it's from a group is, number one, is it safe? And I think we've addressed that. And then secondly is, you know, is it legal? Am I allowed to do this? And what we've heard every story in the world, oh, I thought I couldn't do it because of this. I was told I couldn't do it because of that. Or, you know, are you allowed to do that? Or, hey, yeah, you know, my mom gets her drugs from Canada. So we can address that. And I think this is a very timely conversation because some of the executive orders that came out of the White House just a few weeks back, I mean, a lot of the conversation that's been happening about importation of medications. But as we talked about earlier, this is not a new conversation. This is something that's been taking place for, you know, several decades now. It seems like it always kind of comes back around every four years. Amazingly, it just happens to be coming back around when there's, you know, presidential elections every four years. But I can speak to that. There's been very, very specific guidance from Border and Customs, from the FDA, from the federal government that allows for individuals to import a 90-day supply of medications for personal use. And that goes back to not because they were trying to create a provision so Casey and I can create a company, but because of those folks that live in Maine or Michigan or Vermont or the caravans of families driving from Minnesota to go up to Winnipeg to purchase you know, insulin. So those provisions have been out there. They've always allowed folks to do that. And there's actually been guidance that says to people, this is how you do it and this is how you do it compliantly. Again, no controlled substances, things like that. So that's always been there. But the the powers that be have tried to convince people, number one, that somehow it's going to be unsafe, and number two, that somehow they're violating federal law. So it is allowed for an individual to source up to a 90-day supply of medication for personal use, again, as long as it's not a controlled substance. But very specifically, the Medicare Modernization Act, the law that created Medicare, specifically addressed the fact that individuals can source medications from Canada and opened up the book to allow for states and municipalities and school boards and private employers to do such a thing. But there was always what I call the poison pill within that legislation. And that said that the Secretary of Health and Human Services had to certify that those drugs that came from Canada were safe and that they would actually lower the cost of the prescriptions. No secretary has ever done that since, what, 2003 when that was signed into law. Except for now, under the executive order, the president has been very, very specifically and basically told Alex Azar that 
you know, you're going to come up with a program that's going to allow the Medicare Modernization Act to be put into effect so that states and school boards and municipalities and private employers can implement the program. So for the very first time, that gray area that existed really doesn't exist anymore because Secretary Azar has come out and has said, yes, we're going to be implementing this provision. And specifically, we're going to be working with the state of Florida, the third largest state in the union, to implement their state importation program. And the thought process is once that's accomplished in a state the size of Florida, from there, it just starts to snowball and you'll start to see that take off more on a larger basis. Yeah, thank you for that. Casey, do you have anything that you want to add to that? I always look to Bill for guidance on that because he's a bit closer to the ground than I am. Yeah, yeah. Having gone through that exercise a couple of years back, it was an interesting exploration to actually look at the code of conduct. The Border and Customs Compliance Officers is, I believe, what you and I are talking about, right? The folks yeah. that would see packages come in and out from the... right. Yeah, we actually got a hold of that and we're able to review their code of conduct that says they have the right to retain a prescription if they believe it's unsafe. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys have a very, very small infinitesimal percentage of prescriptions that are actually retained at the border. Is that correct? Yeah, less than, I think the last little statistics I ran, it was less than 0.03%. Okay. Yeah, and Michael, just to speak to one thing about you said about the code of conduct, the Border and Customs Field Manual, that actually says not only that they can choose not to seize a package or to hold a package, but they actually say that they should allow for an individual who's sourcing medication for personal use to do that. So it's very, very specific. So whenever we hear the argument that you can't do this, we always say, well, then why does the field manual actually say that a Border and Customs agent should allow for an individual to import medication? And as you know, because of our experience, it's always very, very difficult for anyone to give us a quality response to that other than, well, 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 you you can't do it. You know, blah, 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 blah. You can't do it. You know, that's kind of the thing. Just cover my ears. I didn't hear what you said. You're not allowed to do it. I guess I wanted to flush that out because the whole point of this is like, because it's a voluntary program and because you're shipping 90 days or less of a prescription for individual consumption, that it meets the litmus test for legality. Right. That's just the point. Certainly. Now, how do you guys make money? We don't make money. Okay. <laughs> <In> a benevolent <laughs> state. <laughs> no, just so you know, and I know that this term is overused, especially in the healthcare world now, but we're very, very transparent about our business model. Let me first tell you what we don't do. We don't charge a per member per month. We don't charge any type of admin or implementation fee or anything like that. We simply say that this is the cost of the prescription drug if it's ordered through our program. If a drug costs $500 here in the United States and we can get it for $100 in Canada, we tell the employer, if somebody orders the medication from us, it's going to cost you $100 to fill that prescription. And basically what we've done is we've built margin into the cost of that $100. So if you really want to get annoyed and you're looking at a drug that we can source for $100, that's $500 in the United States, it's probably less than $100 because we typically have about a 15 to 20% markup built into that drug cost. So the way we get compensated is actually built into the cost of that prescription medication. Now, let me just expand on that. That a little bit because we don't charge any type of a percentage of savings either. We know that there's a lot of consulting groups that are doing that or some other groups that are trying to work that in as the model. We don't do that. We're very open up front if this is the cost. 
But we do have several consultants that we work with that part of their arrangement with their client may be across the board, we're going to save you X amount of dollars. And then they're paid on some type of a bonus structure based on a percentage of savings. So we're happy to share those details of the cost of the prescription versus what it would cost through the PBM. But we don't share in any of that percentage of savings. It's very, very specific. We have margin built into the price of the medication that we charge to the employer. So, yeah, price per prescription, no, what I call it, it's just the gamesmanship, right? And I'm not downplaying any consultant that's doing that as long as the savings is legitimate, right? It's not some crazy ass number out in the space that you say would have been your cost, but if you can actually legitimize the savings and so be it. So tell me, why is it that prescription medications cost so much more in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world? So, Mike, I think there's a number of reasons for that. And the biggest one that we hear is to do with the lack of central negotiating power. So all of the other countries that we're sourcing from are countries where the government will negotiate directly with the manufacturers on pricing. Taking New Zealand as an example, we have a government body that controls pricing called Pharmac, and they will actually set the manufacturers against each other in a competition for one particular drug category. So, for example, if you want to list a beta blocker, all the different manufacturers of that beta blocker all have to put their best price forward, knowing that only one will be chosen. So, and that doesn't happen in the US, so you don't have that that competition. So really, the pricing is left to essentially what the market will bear. There's no cap on it at all. And we also, we do often sort of hear that the drug prices are higher due to research and development costs, but there's a lot of evidence that that's not actually the case. Quite often when the new drugs are being identified, they're often developed in universities and they might be funded by government grants. Or, for example, Savaldi, which is like one of the significantly high-priced medications that's been talked about a lot, that came out of university research that then fed into a biotech startup company. But that research was heavily funded by the US government and the VA. So I don't think they're a great reason for putting forward why you're drug pricing is so much higher. I guess, And there's also other factors like the regulatory environment. So there's patent extensions. The games the manufacturers play, I guess, with the pay for delay for generics entering the market. Um, yeah, it's a whole range of factors, I think, that just, it just seems to be a simpler process anywhere in the United States. And Casey, what I would offer to that is one thing you said that was key was that you have somebody keeping score that is an independent third party. In this case, in New Zealand, it's the government, right? Now, obviously, Yes. They care because they want to get the drugs at the lowest price possible and also make sure there's enough quality medication for everybody that needs it. But in the U.S., what's different is that the person that's keeping the score has a tremendously perverse incentive to mark up that cost as high as possible and create games so that they can make even more money along the way. And it's just one of those things that, you know, as we talk about RY, that's one of the things that frustrates me about healthcare. And we didn't talk about your why as much, but I think it was evident from the conversation. But for me, that's the biggest difference is you actually have a third party that arbitrates the process to make sure that you get the best deal possible in the broadest scale possible. And Michael, not to get too wonky about this, you know, Casey is is a whole heck of a lot better about explaining the international, you know, systems versus our system here in the United States. But one thing that I get frustrated about as somebody who works in this industry, as somebody who had a family member, as I told you about my brother, who really had a half a million dollars worth of healthcare costs, and someone who works with individuals and employers all the time, is that the argument that's always made is like, well, we need to charge Americans more because like nobody else is paying. 
paying for it. And as an American consumer, I just kind of say, well, that just doesn't work. How about we, and again, I'm not trying to raise Casey's prescription drug costs, but how about we address it a little bit differently? Like maybe the Kiwis and the Aussies and the Canadians can pay a little bit more so we can pay a little bit. Like the argument of just like, well, nobody else will pay the price, so you have to pay it. And the scare tactic to American voters to say, well, if you don't pay it, your grandma's going to die because we're not going to come up with the new research and development. It just doesn't make sense. It's just simply not fair. And the wonky part that I'll throw in there is that the Medicare Modernization Act that we talked about earlier, that obviously creates Medicare Part D, that you know has a lot of impact on Medicare Advantage and all those things. The other thing that happened with Medicare Modernization is pharma bought into that and actually supported the Bush administration. And this isn't a political statement, this is a fact, but part of what they had to write into that was that there would be no negotiation between Medicare and the drug companies on, on the cost of prescription drugs. And the reason why that's so important is if you think about that Medicare, the largest purchaser of healthcare in the entire world, is not allowed to negotiate the prices. We often talk about price fixing and things like that. That's not what we're, we're talking about, just negotiating the price. And because Medicare can't negotiate the price of drugs, if you've ever been involved in plan design or development, what do we base almost everything on? A knee replacement, we're going to base it on some type of a percentage of Medicare allowable, right? Well, the Medicare allowable amount for prescription drugs is kind of whatever the heck you want to charge. So because Medicare has this benchmark that doesn't exist, it comes down into the group market and the individual market. And that's why we're paying so much for prescription medications, because it's really a shell game. You know what I mean? And that's that becomes the big problem. That's a much bigger issue that we have to discuss on at another time. But I guess the thing I'll leave you with is there's a lot of policymakers and a lot of stakeholders that are making an awful lot of money. And I'm a business person. I'm certainly not opposed to that. But we have to look at the real issue. And secondly, it's just not fair as an American consumer to have folks tell us that we're going to pay so much more because the rest of the world isn't paying you know, for that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, agreed totally. There's certainly other conversations and arguments we can have. That's a crazy foundation for why we get mm-hmm. to pay so much more than our friends overseas. Let me ask you, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, Bill or Casey, how would they do that? So um, they could go to our website, which is rxmanage.com, or they could contact me on Casey at globalrxmanage.com, or Bill is Bill at rxmanage.com. Very good. And I would expect most employers that are listening to this, if they just wanted to get a hold of you, they would probably start with some type of data analysis or data request. And that might open up a whole can of questions from their consultant or their PBM. But that's a great place to start because that's what I would call that's where activation starts. When you realize how much more you're spending than you should, you need somebody like Bill and somebody like Casey to walk you through that. Anything else you'd like to add, guys? I think we've probably covered a fairly good amount in the time that we had. And like Bill said, there's a whole bit more that we could talk about and add, but we probably need to leave that for another day. Yeah. And just thanks so much for the time. And if anybody, you know, obviously has any questions, communicate through you or communicate to us directly. We're happy to answer those questions. And uh, as you know, Mike, we're always willing to provide that feedback as much as we can to provide that education that allows that employer to feel comfortable with the options to lower their costs. Thank you for listening to this episode of Solving Healthcare. If you liked this episode, please rate it and also provide your comments. If you would like to know how this service or others could fit within your organization, or if you'd like to sign up for future podcasts and news updates, please go to www.solvinghealthcare.net 
and click on contact. Thank you.